Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, we're going to start off a little history this time around. How many of you are familiar with the uh, the Treaty of Versailles? I know there are any anybody who studies war history or uh, has has followed, you know, for instance, uh, World War One history will know a little bit about that. But uh, it was over a hundred years ago. In fact, it was a hundred years ago as of let me think. I think it was last Friday marked the 100th anniversary of the Treaty of Versailles. Would it surprise you to know that this treaty is still affecting the modern world? Now, most people I know who are familiar with this will say, well, it's a treaty that actually, you know, it came at the end of World War I. It uh, demanded enough in terms of reparations and uh, shame for the German people that uh, the Treaty of Versailles actually went beyond the harm done in World War I in punishing the German people and so humiliated them that it set the stage. It made possible the rise of Adolf Hitler. I'm not going to ask you to take my word for it, but uh, I think this, it may be one of those instances of unintended consequences. I want you to hear Nathan Petrie's take on this. Because he says after 100 years, it's still affecting the world. He says, June 28th, 1919, it's a date we often overlook, but its impact is significant. On this date, 100 years ago, Germany signed the Treaty of Versailles, her peace settlement for the First World War. While the treaty ended the British naval blockade, which starved millions of Germans to death, its terms were quite harsh. Germany was forced to pay 33 billion U.S. dollars, that'd be 500 billion in today's money, for all damage done to Allied property and civilians. Germany also lost more than a tenth of its population and more than 13% of its national territory. Millions of Germans were separated from the German nation and stuck in new artificial states like Czechoslovakia, in which they were minorities treated as second-class citizens. German Austria was also barred from reuniting with Germany proper, and the Rhineland was occupied by the Allies. Finally, although not responsible for the outbreak of the conflict, Germany was forced to sign the War Guilt Clause, Article 231 of the treaty, that rested the blame for the war solely on German German shoulders. This caused great resentment among the Germans, for it framed them as uniquely evil in history. Now, Nathan Petrie says these castigations, although a century old, had serious repercussions, which continue down to our present world. And he gives a list of four of the ways that this treaty still is affecting the world. The first is the end of European hegemony. The Versailles Treaty blacklisted Germany, destroying any chance they had at hegemony, the ability to have political dominance in a given territory. This was very different from the Treaty of Paris settlement at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, which brought back France into the fold of the European nations as an equal. 
Germany was humiliated at Versailles, greatly reduced in territory and burdened with an impossible sum of reparations payments. However, not only German but European power was also greatly weakened. Greatly indebted to the U.S., the British and the French began to show the first signs of their eventual collapse. Moreover, the material and spiritual weakness of the European powers was demonstrated with their inability to handle the rise of National Socialist Germany. Number two, the creation of a liberal democratic Europe. While some drastic changes were made after World War II, such as the ethnic cleansing of over 16 million Germans in Eastern Europe, the post-war settlement laid the general boundaries of modern-day Europe. And the war also destroyed the old conservative order in Europe. Powerful monarchies and aristocracies were eliminated, and liberal democracy became the norm in European affairs, partly through American influence. Number three, the beginnings of the American order. World War I destroyed the might of the British, French, and Italian victors while vanquishing the Germans, the Russians, and the Ottomans. Across the Atlantic, the U.S. was relatively untouched by the war, having entered only in the final year. This was repeated in World War II, leaving the position, the U.S. rather, in a position to be the world's leader. Now, that leadership played out in part through the League of Nations. While originally rejected by the Republican Senate, Woodrow Wilson's brainchild proved to be the model for international order established in 1945, the United Nations. And number four, the treaty's impact on the rise of communism and national socialism. Another way, the Treaty of Versailles is still being felt a hundred years later. With Britain and France undermining the new German Republic at its inception, the German people never viewed the post-World War I regime as fully legitimate, associating it with the humiliation imposed by the West. These grievances made the German people look to radical solutions such as National Socialism or Communism. In retrospect, had the Versailles Treaty given more power to Germany and worked to create an anti-Soviet front, it's likely that the USSR and Bolshevism would have been wiped out early in the 20th century. Instead, the Treaty of Versailles created a desire to reclaim lost lands leading Germans to believe they had legitimate claims on neighboring territories. This led to World War II, with the Soviet, and with the Soviet conquest of Eastern Europe, caused the spread of globalism on a global scale. So, in a nutshell, the Treaty of Versailles is a defining event in the 20th century, as it formalized the rise of a liberal democratic world led by the U.S. while maneuvering the world to a point where National Socialism and then later Communism were dominant forces in the 20th century. Now, the point here is the centennial of this treaty is an opportunity to reflect on its influence and learn from the course of history. Are we willing to learn from the mistakes of history to avoid them in the future? Great question from Nathan Petrie from uh, Hillsdale College. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Brian, Sam calling. How hey, Sam. I'm well. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Uh, hey, I wanted to go back to something you had in the first hour. <clears throat> I know you got listeners down in the second hour that probably weren't there, but to recap just briefly, as you were talking about the issue of child support and this whole issue, you're reading an article on that, and this whole issue of the way the state handles child support. I've always had a problem with this. Not that I've had any children myself, but I know a lot of people who have. And my problem with this is it's typical of the state. What you do is... 
if the person's behind in their child support, you make it so that they darn well can't pay their child support by the time you're done with them. Yeah, for real. Yeah, I mean, boy, what a joke, you know. So is it really about child support, or is it really the state being in control, more of the state wanting control and influence over everything than anything else? I think that's a fair question. I mean, I mentioned in the last hour, the it, it absolutely was heart-wrenching to watch this attorney who was clearly... Um, you know, a dad who was concerned about his kids and, and wanting to fulfill his obligations, but they set the amount so high he could not afford. He couldn't make enough money, even as a patent attorney, to pay his child support. And and so the answer was, well, then we'll throw you in jail. This is why the state needs to butt out of this stuff. You know, it's uh, there's got to be a better way than having the state involved because the state screws up everything they get their hands on. And. This is just another one of those things, you know. What about just paying? What about just paying retro, uh, you know, restitution to the victim and being done with it? If there's a victim involved, you know, such as a, you know, I mean, a, if you know, for whatever reason, if they can't make it, you know, let let the parties decide, and then one party's going to have to obviously, you know, fulfill their obligation. And see, that's where the state comes in because you have somebody who perhaps didn't fill their obligation, so the state comes in. Somebody goes whining to the state, and that gives the state room to come in. And once they come in, then everything goes to pot. Yeah, the, the, well, when force is the only thing you have, you know, to, to really, you know, the only tool in your toolbox, um, it, it tends to make it tempting to start imposing one-size-fits-all solutions when, when they clearly can't be. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, too, the other thing, too, is sometimes it's not always dads that are the, uh, the uh, deadbeats, too. You know, a lot of times they want to frame it all on the fathers. And, and uh, you know, it takes two to tangle, and sometimes it is the father, and sometimes it's not just the father, you know. It's, there's a whole interesting topic there, and, and I, I would love to do a show someday on, on fathers' rights. Because there, there are some systems, I think at Washington State, I had a friend who was divorced and had moved from Washington State, and he says, man, you're nothing more than a walking wallet to those officials. Yeah, and they love it because they can get in there and they get their cut. You can bet on that. And, uh, Plus the power. Yep, and the power. Yep, absolutely. Well, that's all I had. I just couldn't resist commenting on that because uh, that's one that I've uh, watched play itself out much to my disgust, you know. Hey, I appreciate your comments. Thanks, Sam. You bet. Take care. All right. We'll take a quick break. We will be back. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right. So we got the historical aspect out of the way here. I'm sorry. It's kind of like starting with a bowl of cereal, no milk. <laughs> History can be a little bit dry, but I think it's fascinating to to learn a little bit about uh, things like the Treaty of Versailles, how it still is having impact. And and if nothing else, look, the the, the whole thing I'm asking you to consider here is how what seemed like maybe not such a big deal then turns out to have had implications that have uh, still remained a big deal. I mean, World War II, my, and I don't claim to have all the answers here, but 
I think you can make a pretty solid case. World War II happened in part because of the Treaty of Versailles. It set the stage for further conflict down the road. And so when we see things like, uh, I don't know, um, the, the War on Terror, for instance, war against a tactic rather than a particular enemy, I think we are setting the stage for something that is likewise going to be affecting generations down the road in terms of the negative or unintended consequences. So what do you do? Well, you try to be wise. You try to consider all the possible angles. Who could be affected in what ways? And and you do your best to... You do your best to minimize the negative or unintended consequences, but you have to first try to anticipate who else could be negatively affected. I don't want to get too far off track here, but, you know, the the idea of, okay, so this guy was riding a motorcycle down a road somewhere, you know, in Yemen, and we blew him up with a drone strike. Now, maybe we got the right guy. Okay, maybe this guy really was a bad match of some kind, but... That extrajudicial assassination, meaning it was he was afforded no due process. Someone in the U.S. Intelligence Committee said, hey, 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 we think this guy's a high mucky muck in, you know, this or that organization. And officially, we don't uh, consider them to be friendly. So that's an, an enemy of the state. And someone makes the decision and a technician sitting in, uh, you know, a trailer, an air conditioned trailer somewhere outside of Las Vegas. Some Air Force technician pushes a button, launches the missile and kills the guy. Okay, all fine and dandy, but what if, just what if, they got the wrong guy? I mean, come on, we all look pretty much the same from 35,000 feet or however high these, these drones fly. What if there was collateral damage? Yeah, we got the guy, and he really was somebody who was involved in some shady stuff, but we also took out a handful of people standing near him. Do we expect their families to just... You know, roll over and say, well, you know, as long as it was done by the U.S. and it was done in good faith in the war on terror, I'm okay with my young, my uh, kid being splattered all over, you know, the ground over there. Not likely. I guarantee you, at some level, there are people who are like that. Not only have I been harmed, but I have been wronged. And, you know, this is a part of the world where honor, particularly family honor, is something that is held in very high esteem. The idea being that somehow I will avenge the death of that person who did not deserve to die. And we create more terrorists. We being our government through its policies. You and I didn't have any say in the matter. We're just expected to shut up, fall in line, wave the flag and cheer a little bit louder. All right. Sorry. I am getting off on a tangent here. Let's take a quick look at how global capitalism makes your hipster minimalism possible. I love Jeff Tucker's writing. I think he is he's one of the more informed and, and better writers out there. And I also like his slant on life. And I don't know if you're into minimalism. I just was reading an article this morning about, uh, who was it? Hang on a sec. I'm going to pull this up real quick because I want to get this right. Amazon is trying to create affordable housing. Now, yes, these are small houses, tiny houses, but their $18,000 Lil Villa house, 
That's $18,000 with free shipping. That's a pretty nice little house. And they have a little cabin. I mean, you can get up around forty, fifty thousand $50,000 if you want. And my thought was, you know, if I ever get to the point where I am no longer owned by my stuff, that is something I would seriously consider. Even to the point where if you had a little property, you want to buy a little property up in Bear Lake, you want to buy a little property somewhere else, you could set up several little houses like this and have a couple of different places you could go to. This is our summer home. This is our winter home. This is our get out of Dodge home. I won't tell anybody where that one is. I just really like the idea. And I know it's kind of a hipster thing. Well, you know, that minimalist living, that's what hipsters do. Well, I've got the beard, I've got the glasses. I may be an old guy, but apparently, uh, you know, maybe I just need a man bun and my kids think I was hip. Here's Tucker's take. Jeff Tucker writing about how global capitalism makes your hipster minimalism possible. He says the family owned barbecue truck at Porkfest was doing a bang up business. I stood in line and finally ordered my plate of meat. In years past, most vendors at this event processed Bitcoin for purchases, even as far back as 2011, when the idea of magic Internet money seemed goofy. But he says all these years later, its inability to scale its popularity has made it slow and expensive to use for regular purchases. So people have turned to tokens and cash. But actually, what is handling most transactions at this campground is credit cards. To get the bill paid, the vendor took out his smartphone with a little attachment stuck in the card and the deed was done. He said, my receipt arrived via email. So Tucker says, I asked about the technology. The truck owner was thrilled to discuss it because it is the source of 95% of his business now. He considers the whole thing to be a lifesaver. Now, 10 years ago, you had to be a merchant of a certain size in order to even accept credit cards. There were multiple layers of third-party providers, fancy hardware, high fees, lots of annoying apparatuses, annoying apparatuses rather. That's why so many small merchants would only accept cash. It was kind of a commercial apartheid developing, one that the arrival of cryptocurrency, fast, low fees, no intermediary, came along to fix, possibly ending our financial exclusion. Well, the same year that Bitcoin was invented, another company came along to change the situation, not by bypassing the existing system, but by making it far more democratic and efficient. That company was Square, and its CEO is Jack Dorsey. Yes, same man as the CEO of Twitter, sometimes is compared with Steve Jobs for his charisma and visionary brilliance. His tiny device attached itself to any smartphone with a card swiper reducing the giant cash register of old to a small box in your pocket. Now, among many other great innovations, the card reader comes free. The profit comes from fees, which are quite low at 2.75%, with no additional subscriptions or layers. The The company produces these little readers by the millions. How is this possible? You ready? One word. Trade. That means China. Global capitalism and trade, innovations in shipping, supply chains, profits, big business, all the stuff both left and right claim to hate. It all sounds really intimidating. Left and right are both determined to hobble the system via tariffs and antitrust and taxes and all kinds of investigations and denunciations, even tech blacklists. But look who actually benefits in the end. It's the smallest merchants. It's the minimalist lifestyle. It's the home-cooked barbecue truck. What we see is the small merchant making money by selling home-cooked foods, food to passersby. 
What we don't see are the factories abroad, the crowded shipping lines, the complex supply chains, the multitudes of layers of production that go into making the seemingly simple transaction possible. He says when he was in Budapest recently, he debated a self-proclaimed left socialist who stood before the audience decrying the complexity of our lives. He longs for a time when people sit around together discussing big ideas, eschewing the smartphone and Internet, drinking a locally owned beer. But he says, here's the problem. There is no way these microbreweries on the current scale could exist without global capitalism. The steel from China, the internal combustion, the smart applications for managing payroll, the fossil fuels for shipping with parts and replacement parts coming from all over the world. Can you see his slant on this? I kind of like it. Got to take a quick break. We'll come back to Jeff Tucker's article right after this. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I am sharing with you an article by Jeffrey Tucker. And it's about how uh, global capitalism makes your minimalist hipster lifestyle possible. So listen up, you minimalist hipster, (laughs) you and your lifestyle. Actually, this is quite a great lesson in economics and uh, in, in how voluntary trade and exchange actually helps us in ways we may not have considered. He talked about uh, debating a socialist guy in Budapest recently who stood before the audience decrying the complexity of our lives. And Tucker's observation here is, my friend longs for the simple life and doing without. And he says, today, this is truly possible. More and more so. That's why people are choosing to live in what they imagine to be this minimalist way, keeping only things which spark joy. The digital nomad. But he says it's possible only because of global capitalism and its creation of ebooks, tiny devices that access all the world's knowledge, communication technology that allows instant video, chatting for free with anyone on the planet, credit card processing that allows us to get what we need, full grocery stores that remove us from food uncertainty, locks and safety devices to grant us security, and so on without limit. Global capitalism, he says, has made possible our aesthetic choice for minimalism. The infinite complexity of the global division of labor and international supply chains makes our simplicity seem easy. And consider what he's saying here. He says, it's true. I can live for days and weeks with a small kit of toiletries, some changes of clothes, a laptop, Internet and a power source. This would never have been possible in ages past. Such a clean and simple life we can enjoy today. Thanks only to the extended order of massive complexity that people we will never meet have built for us. Now, he says it's not unusual for socialists to speak as if we can easily dispense with global capitalism. For instance, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wore on a border trip her very fancy Movado watch that retails for $600. Now, she's being criticized for this. And Tucker says it doesn't matter to me what watch she wears, but the performative contradiction is a bit much to bear. The Movado company is a designer of watches based in Switzerland, but the watches themselves can't be manufactured there. They are outsourced to China and Hong Kong. They, too, are a product of the global capitalism that AOC decries. 
So too with so many products and services in our time. The more the division of labor expands, the less visible are the production processes that make our standards of living possible. And he says, look around you. I guarantee that within just a few feet of you, there are goods that involve dozens of layers of manufacturing involving many countries. Thousands, even millions of people have made it possible for these goods to be right within your reach. Global capitalism has made it possible for you to forget all about the complexity behind the everyday conveniences you enjoy. And that's good and bad. It's good because capitalism is a humble system that loves you and asks nothing back. It's bad for precisely the reason that it can function without your appreciation or allegiance and thus tempts people to imagine that they could go on without it. It's not true. But even for a day to live without global capitalism, he says, try, try to live even for a day without it. It's not possible for the experiment to take place, but pretend like it were. It's a guarantee that you wouldn't like the results. Moreover, he says, it's not really about you. It's about every small merchant trying to make a go of it. The irony is that global capitalism is the best friend that the hipster minimalist, the digital nomad, and the small food truck selling local food ever had. By the way, you can check out that article on the American Institute for Economic Research. What a great take. Absolutely love it. Going to shift gears now. Let's talk about the trades. I mentioned last hour that uh, had uh, my son just recently returned home from serving a mission for our church. So now he's he's actively been looking for work. By the way, he's actually landed a job. Talk about a go-getter. We brought him home on Thursday. Um, He had employment secured by Saturday. He's making plans to go to school, and I'm I'm very happy. This I, I am proud of the man that my son has become. And as we were talking with some of his friends, some of his former mission buddies, uh, my wife was really emphasizing, you guys go to school, you get the degree, don't you give up, get that degree. And I could agree to a point, but I think sometimes the trades get an unfair shake. And in interest of that, I want to share with you an article from Jeff Minnick. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. Two thumbs up for the trades. Many young people labor under expectations regarding their careers. So this is, this is something that I would ask, you know, my son as well as others to consider. Minnick says, last week I was strolling through a park beside the French Broad River when I met a former student, a young woman whose fiery personality and humor had always enlivened classroom discussions. With her was a handsome young man who I assume she's dating. When I asked, asked him what sort of work he did, he looked a little bit abashed and said, I'm a plumber with a defensive note in his voice. Now, Jeff Minnick says, I used to see the same reaction in some of my students who choose a trade or chose a trade over college. One kid, a burly fellow, always seemed embarrassed by choosing to become a welder, even though he found lucrative employment at the age of 20. And he asks, why is it that anyone employed in the trades must feel defensive about their choice of occupation? It can't be the salary. According to U.S. News and World Report, in 2017, the median salary of a plumber was $52,590. That same year, data from the Social Administration, Social Security Administration puts the average wage of an American worker at, at $48,252. So it can't be the work that those in the trades do, which, which of us hasn't given thanks to the heavens when a plumber fixes that busted pipe? Or when the roofer repairs the leaky shingles or the builder takes an unfinished basement 
and magically transforms it into a playroom and two bedrooms with a bath. When we become acquainted with an honest, competent worker, whether it's a mechanic, a brick mason, a carpenter, if we have any sense at all, we treat that person to red carpets and applause. But Jeff Minnick says, I've asked the wrong question, so let me reframe it. How is it that some of us have made those employed in the trades feel inferior to those in the professions? Why do some regard the young person who attends the local community college to study elevator repair or dental hygiene as inferior to a contemporary studying English literature in college? Why view a man in a coat and tie sitting behind a desk as more prestigious than the guy who comes home with dirt under his fingernails? He says it's idiotic, really. The cars, our cars, the roads on which we drive, our houses and apartments, offices and restaurants, every chair, every shelf, every implement from our toothbrushes to our favorite coffee mugs. All of these things are the work of human hands. Some of these goods are the product of assembly lines. Some the consequence of men and women of the trades who bring an array of skills to their tasks. All of these people have an intelligence often hidden by the title of their occupation. A man in his early 30s I met only once worked in a paper mill in Canton, North Carolina. He spoke with an accent native to the hills where he lived, and he looked nondescript. During our conversation, however, Jeff Minnick says he revealed he had bought a house at the age of 17. His uncle helped him with the financing. He fixed it up, rented it out, and now owned upwards of 20 such houses. The same man was fascinated by the history of the American West and used his summer vacations to visit historic places like the Alamo or Little Bighorn National Monument. Jeff Minnick says, my son-in-law is a contractor, a skilled builder, and a maker of furniture. He is a bright man, quick on the uptake, who has read many great books and will soon be teaching Euclidean geometry in a private school. Many of his friends, both those who graduated from college and those who never attended, also work in the trades and display an equal array of gifts aside from their jobs. Another woman in town, a homeschooling mom and teacher in the local co-op, declined to go to college and instead became an auto mechanic. Minnick says the key to the pursuit of happiness in our work lies in discovering what we enjoy and then looking for ways to match those pursuits to a vaca- to a vocation, rather. That's something we're thinking about. I will never forget one of my mentors telling me about how his car broke down as he and his wife were driving across uh, Southern California. And they were driving through the part of California where... Um, well, there's not a lot, you know, like out, out by Bakersfield or somewhere, you know, out there where there's just a lot of open space. And with their car broke down, here came the tow truck driver to tow their car in and get them to where they could get it fixed. Now you would think, well, there's a, there's a blue collar profession for you, just a tow truck driver. But my mentor said, you know, when they got talking with the guy, they rode in the truck with him as he was towing them into the shop. This guy wasn't just a tow truck driver. This was a man on a rescue mission. And by the way, he was a very bright, classically educated guy who could discuss numerous well-rounded topics. But he viewed his job as making a difference and saving people who were in a moment of distress. And if you've ever been broken down and waiting for a tow truck driver, you know exactly what he's talking about. What a relief when the guy comes to get you. 
And when he comes to get you, if he comes with enthusiasm about what he's doing and a desire to bring you back to the safety of civilization and help you solve your problems, how is that a lesser position in life? I don't think it is. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Okay, I got two more quick articles I want to share with you before we reach the end of today's program. 40 lessons to teach your kids before they leave home. This one just really struck a note with me because I'm watching my nest uh, become emptier and emptier. And you know what? I'm really proud of of my kids as they have gone forth and they've uh, learned to become problem solvers. Um, I I don't say this to be self-deprecating, but... It's very clear to me, my kids are growing up to be better people than, than I have grown up to be. And, and I'm, I'm proud of them for, for, for being, you know, an improvement on the preceding generation. I think, I think that's, that's how it should be. It makes me happy. It doesn't make me feel like, oh, man, that sucks. My kids are better than me. I want them to be better. But when it comes down to things that they need to know, I love Daisy, Daisy Luther's take on this. She says, as a parent, the most important job I will ever hold is mom to my two daughters. And if I'm not teaching them the important life lessons they need to survive and thrive in this crazy world, then I'm not doing a very good job at all. Of course, once they get out there, there are a million variables. But how they deal with those variables has a lot to do with whether they were raised to think independently or waited to, or raised rather to wait for rescue. I think about the, uh, uh, what was the commercial for? I don't even know what it was for, but uh, uh, people on a moving escalator and suddenly the escalator stops. And they just stand there. Oh, hello. Hello. Can someone help us? The, the escalator stopped. They could have just walked on either up or down, but instead someone come help us. That's the kind of people waiting for rescue. So Daisy Luther talks about some of the skills that every young person should have. And I'm just going to run through the list really quickly. But whether you're raising girls or boys before leaving the nest, tell me it wouldn't make sense for your kids to know how to do these things. Cook inexpensive, nutritious meals from scratch. Know how to use up leftovers. How to get from point A to point B using public transit or under their own power. How to budget limited money so that the most important things are paid first. How to mend or repair items instead of just replacing them. They should take a course in first aid, CPR, and anything else applicable that's offered. The more you know, the more calm you are able to remain during a crisis. They should have a good first aid kit, a good basic first aid kit, and know how to use everything in it. They should also know home remedies for various common illnesses, teas for tummy aches, treatment for flu symptoms, how to soothe skin irritations, how to care for a fever. I love this one. They should know how to drive, not just an automatic transmission, but also a standard transmission. They should know how to change a tire. You don't want your teenage daughter stranded on the side of the road at the mercy of whoever stops to help. Daisy Luther says, my daughters were not allowed to drive the car until they had demonstrated their ability to change the tire with the factory jack. 
They should know how to perform minor maintenance like checking the fluid and, and oil levels, filling up the washer fluid, checking tire pressure and topping them off if needed, changing out the wiper blades. They should know how to use basic tools for repair, how to cook a company meal. Everybody needs one delicious meal that's just a little fancier that they can cook when they have a guest. How to grocery shop within a budget and have healthy food for the week ahead. Speaking of that, she says how to budget in general so they don't have too much month and not enough money. How to clean, how to do laundry, including stain removal. How to think for themselves, how to question authority. How to budget for holidays and vacations, how to manage their time to get tasks done by deadlines. How to tell the difference between a want and a need. How to be frugal with utilities and consumable goods. How to pay bills. How to stay out of debt. How to pay off debt if they have it. How to keep safe. Basic self-defense. Basic weapons handling skills. How to navigate with a paper map, not Google or their car's GPS. How to make extra money fast if an emergency arises. And then she goes into some of the emergency skills every young person should have. How to light a fire. How to cook safely over an open fire. How to stay warm when the power's out. Whether that means operating an indoor propane heater, using the wood stove or fireplace, or bundling up in a tent and sleeping bags in the living room. How to keep themselves fed when the power is out. Including having enough supplies on hand that they could stay fed at home for up to two weeks. How to deal with the most likely disasters in their area. They should know about the dangers of off-grid heating and cooking, the risks of carbon monoxide poisoning in unventilated rooms, how to purify water, how to keep safe both at home and when they're out, know the difference between cover and concealment, how to do laundry by hand, how to hang it to dry, how to keep things sanitary when you don't have running water, how to acquire food, foraging, fishing, gardening, or hunting. I mean, that seems like a pretty long list. And I can totally understand where people might feel like, oh, that's a bit much. But those skills are, that's part of your wealth. If you think of it this way, wealth is everything that remains when your cash flow stops. So it could be property, it could be tools, it could be you know possessions, but skills are a part of your wealth. Once you have them, they are yours. Now you may have to you know practice to keep them sharp, but... That's how I look at it. That's, that is a part of how you measure your, your net worth. What skills do you have? All right, one more shift of gears here. We're going to end on this note. Down with yoga, up with baseball. <laughs> this is an article from intellectualtakeout.org. Uh, Casey Chalk is the author. Casey says, not long ago, a former boss suggested I take up yoga to reduce stress. And soon thereafter, an old friend noted the positive effects that yoga had had on him. And then someone at church praised yogic meditation and breathing exercises. Now, Casey says, I don't doubt the usefulness of Eastern medication or meditation, rather. Sorry, Freudian slip. Yet my gut reaction to this craze might best be characterized by the skeptical squint from Cobra Kai's Johnny Lawrence when he's forced to rent out his good old fashioned American karate dojo to a yoga class. Is there no venerable American tradition of managing stress? Were we all suffering from hypertension before the Beatles visited the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi? Contra America's namaste craze, I'd submit that throwing a baseball is one of those great American stress-reducing traditions that we should all revisit. 
Now, Casey says, my discovery of baseball's meditative qualities happened while living in Thailand, one of the epicenters of Buddhism. It wasn't the droves of Westerners in their comical baggy elephant pants flocking to Thai temples on some spiritual quest that elicited my impulse to find a commensurate contemplative activity. He says, my wife and I found a Catholic parish in the heart of Bangkok that, although not exactly our preferred liturgical flavor, was able to meet our spiritual needs. Rather, the daily grind of living and working in a foreign country nursed a longing for the distant America I loved. I missed the cuisine, the seasons, the landscapes, and the culture, and I missed baseball. He says, I longed to read about baseball in the morning paper, talk about it with friends, and go to the ball games. But I also longed for the texture of the ball, its arc as it glided through the air, the hard snap it made when finding home in a leather glove. I remembered the baseball of my youth on vast green spaces surrounded by trees, perhaps because everything in Bangkok was so crowded and short of open spaces. He says it was a bit odd, since I hadn't played competitive baseball since I was 12 and only played one season of rec softball while in college. I had turned to other athletic activities at a far more competitive level for many years since the glory days of Little League. All the same, baseball is what I craved and what I requested when friends hosted cookouts for my family as we returned to the States each summer for vacation. He says, I think my friends thought my baseball demand seemed a bit strange, given that most of them hadn't thrown a ball in years. Yet there we stood with our old faded gloves borrowed or inherited from our fathers in a fenced-in backyard in Virginia. We lobbed those balls beginning at 30 feet, then 40, then 50. We threw grounders. We lofted up simulated pop flies. It went on for more than an hour. Wives and girlfriends watched amusedly. I think my friends grew tired of it. Not me. He says, I was like a pet dog who'd been kept inside for too long, running and throwing all over that grass. When it was over, I congratulated my ragged band of brothers. I eagerly exclaimed, wasn't that great? Although a bit perplexed, they had to agree. And he says, ever since then, I've bought a couple of gloves and, I, and a ball. I brought a couple of gloves and a ball to outdoor social gatherings I attend. Whether it's picnics, barbecues, on the beach, one can throw a baseball just about anywhere. All you need is another willing participant. Few accessories are required, no yoga pants, no air conditioning, no mat, just a ball, two gloves, and God's earth. Playing catch can be done in solid quietude or with a friendly banter. Whatever the circumstances, I've found it cultivates a contemplative mentality, perhaps similarly to yoga because there's a rhythmic exercise of mind and body. Throw and catch, throw and catch, extend the arm, move right, extend the arm, move left. Whistle of the ball, crack of the glove. There's even scientific evidence that throwing a baseball has psychological benefits. Well, I didn't think anybody could do it, but I think I've just seen it now. Someone made the case that baseball could actually rival yoga in terms of its therapeutic benefits. This actually makes me really want to go bust out my old glove. i got to go see where I can find it. I know it's around here somewhere. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 